Hello, and welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the ups and downs of the creative process and how to keep it moving. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. I am a writer, singer, improv comedy newbie, science fiction geek, and creativity coach who loves helping right-brained folks get unstuck. I am so excited to be coming to you with interviews and coaching calls to show you the depth and breadth both of creative pursuits and creative people, to give you some insight into their experiences and to inspire you. My guest today is Dr. Kelly Flanagan, a psychologist whose letters to his daughter have gone viral and the author of Lovable, Embracing What is Truest About You So You Can Truly Embrace Your Life, a beautiful book that I read about a year ago and that surprised me with its emphasis on the importance of following your creative passions. I can't wait for you to hear what he has to say about his own history with creative work and how creativity reveals our true selves and vice versa. So let's jump right in. Thank you so much for agreeing to to talk to me today. I'm sure just to just for a start that people are going to see that I'm talking to you and they're going to think, oh, she's going to talk to a psychologist about how creativity works, uh-huh. which isn't actually why I wanted to talk to you at all. Okay. I, you know, when I read Lovable last year, I was so surprised when I got to the third part and it was all about going out and finding your creative thing and doing whatever that creative passion is. And, you know, I'm in retrospect, I'm not entirely surprised because I always find your writing to be so tender and human in a way that a lot of other people's isn't. And it's clear to me that that's a passion of yours. But I, I listened to one of your episodes and I will confess that I have been listening to your podcast out of order, which is not how you're supposed to do it. <laughs> it's totally fine. You're forgiven. <laughs> Good. But um, you happened to mention in that episode your experience of discovering your creative self. And I think you went to mm-hmm. a conference that you referred to in that episode. But it made me wonder, you know, what was that like for you? Mm. So, um, yeah, I guess I had been you know, what's crazy about this is, um, I wasn't quite sure what we'd be talking about, but, um, just this morning, I, this is my first, really my first day off in two and a half weeks. And I gave myself the morning just to spend some time reflecting. And I asked my wife if I could use a new journal she'd gotten to do some reflecting. And she's like, no, it's mine. So <laughs> I, I was like, okay, I got to find a journal. I actually dug up my old journals from my bedside table. And, uh, cause I knew there was space in some of them. Anyways, I spent some time this morning reading back through my journals of seven, eight years ago, as I was beginning to discover my passion for writing. And, uh, um, and, and so, yeah, I think like at, at first, you know, it was about 2011 when I, I finally started to l- admit to myself, like, wow, you've you've been trying to write forever. You've got a half of a novel on a hard drive somewhere from graduate school. You have always enjoyed writing. And so maybe it's maybe it's time to start getting a little more serious about that. Don't just write in your journals, like put begin to put it out there. And that's uh and that's where the the idea of blogging came from. That was in late 2011. Um, I think I'd finally gotten to the point in my life where I I wasn't I wasn't too scared of putting my words out there that I knew like if people were critical of it, I could handle it for the most part. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so about 2012, I started blogging and it, I think it was September of that year of 2012 um, that I went to the conference that you're talking about. And I went to that conference expecting, you know, to get all the secrets to being a creative um, that would make it sort of more efficient and orderly and productive and less scary and more predictable and, and all of that. 
And the one thing I came away from that conference with was the, the one thing that differentiates people who've identified as creatives from everybody else is that they just totally embrace the mess of being creative, the mess of creating that, that when you're creating, you're sort of, you're wandering into an interior space within yourself and you're rooting around for whatever gifts exist there. And then you're trying to find a way to bring them back out and give them to the world. And that is a, it's a, it's, it can be scary and messy like any adventure. Right. And, uh, and so to me, that conference really, um, really opened me up uh, and gave me permission to let the creative process be as uncertain, messy, scary, fun, exhilarating, adventurous as anything else. That's great. So you wrote as a kid too? So, yeah, like, you know, again, um, I, I credit, uh, Susan Jaden at, um, at Waterbrook. Uh, I was in a, um, I was, it was in the middle of pitching lovable and her publishing house was considering it and we were just talking about it. And, uh, she referenced something that she had, um, uh, started to do in her life. And she said, it was the thing I never knew I always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved that phrase. Like it instantly got in, inside of me and, and she's been gracious enough to let me take that phrase and use it. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think writing was the thing I never knew I always wanted to do. Um, you know, when I look back in hindsight, it's like, well, duh, <laughs> um, you were winning young author contests when you were younger, or at least getting, you know, getting entered into them. Um, I, I always loved doing papers in college because I knew even if I didn't know what I was talking about, I could pull off an A with my, (laughs) with my writing. Um, And then I had this impulse throughout graduate school uh, to, um, to write a novel. In fact, and then when I look back from there, it's like, wait, I I was wanting to write a, I've always, whatever author I was obsessed with at the time, I wanted to write a novel sort of like they, they wrote it. Um, I think what shifted for me in 2011 and 2012 was this permission to like, you don't have to write like anybody else. You just get to write like you. Um, And that opened up all sorts of freedom to just, just start writing and see what came out. And that's such a huge thing, I think, for people, because, you know, comparison is such a problem. You know, people will say, I have this idea, but so-and-so did it already. Or mm-hmm. uh, why should I write this book? I'm not, you know, George R.R. R. Martin or whoever. It's like, well, right. you're you. So, that's right. you know, your view and your words are just as valid as anybody else's. Yeah, I like it. It was also freedom for me to just embrace the possibility that there are no new ideas, but there are new voices to share those ideas. Um, yes. And that my task isn't to come up with something brilliant and new. My task is to, to honor my voice and to express it as authentically as I can and to trust that in doing so, there will be at least a small group of people who couldn't have heard that idea in someone else's voice, wouldn't have resonated with them. But, but when heard in my voice, it will make a difference in their life. Um, and so when the ego comes in and says, oh, you got to be brilliant and come up with something new, um, I think to myself, no, you just have to come up with something you um, and, and say it in your own way. That's, that's wonderful. I feel like that should be on a bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it sounds like when you wrote as when, when you were younger that, you know, you were pretty well encouraged if you were entering contests and that kind of thing. Does that sound about right? Uh, it's a great question. In hindsight, I would say... Um, uh, that I think well encouraged is a relative term. I think that if I were to witness um, 
sort of young people in my world with the affinity for writing that I had, I'd be really going out of my way to encourage them. I don't think I got a lot of that explicit encouragement. Okay. Um, the encouragement that I got was less from people and more from um, being rated on my performance, whether it was okay. in grades or, you know, um, getting an honorable mention in a young author's contest or something like that. Um, the first person that I can really remember encouraging my writing was a high school teacher who I think in the acknowledgments for lovable, actually two married English teachers um, who uh, I felt really both affirmed my writing and, um, and, and still then I couldn't quite hear it. Um, but, but they are the two that stand out. Um, so yeah, like that's something that I go out of my way to do now is when I see young people who seem to have an affinity for any form of creativity, mm-hmm. uh, it's to affirm not their performance of it, um, but their practice of it, you know, yeah. that, uh, you, you enjoy doing that, don't you? Uh, yeah, I really do. Keep, we'll keep doing what you enjoy. Um, and it's so subjective, right? Like uh, my middle guy who's 11, he has entered a couple of art contests and, um, and, and, you know, at the, at the judgment of the, of the exhibits, he's never won anything. Um, but he's become aware of how subjective the judging is when it comes to art. Um, and that, uh, that it doesn't really need to be about getting awards. It just needs to be about, uh, about practicing what you love. Definitely. So I'm guessing that, that the idea of practicing what you love is part of why you devote so much time to this idea in your book and everywhere else. Yeah, I think, um, I think practicing your passion, um, particularly in the creative arena, um, it's, the, it's the culmination of your true self. You know, in Lovable, we talk about this idea that um, we, we sort of have to go, most of us adults have to go on a journey back to remembering and reclaiming our mm-hmm. true self understanding our worthiness, beginning to get a sense of the very unique and worthy person that we are. Um, and then we hopefully go through this process of, of finally beginning to reveal that true self to the world and getting connected with our, our people who really appreciate who we are. Um, and, and then, and I think that's great. And I think people at that point would say, Hey, I really, I actually like myself and there are people who like me, but something is missing. Like I, there's just an unfinished piece to my life that I can't quite grasp. And one of the things I wanted to do with Lovable was to point out that, um, you know, that relationship, that finding a place to belong, it isn't, it isn't the conclusion to life that many of us think that it is, um, that the culmination of the true self isn't just showing it to people and having it embraced. It's living it out in the things that we do with our day-to-day lives in the form of, of practicing the things we're passionate about. You have such a a fabulous way of putting ideas like that that makes them accessible and powerful at the same time, which is part of why I wanted to talk to you today. (laughs) (laughs) I often say to to writers, like, it's not glorious. Like, your your job, this is the job that not a lot of people want to do, and you find it fun for some reason. Your job (laughs) is to sit sit alone in in a room by yourself with only your internal world and, and... put to words things that most people don't put to words um, so that when they hear it, they don't go, Ooh, I never knew that. They go, that's what I've been thinking all along. That's what I've been trying to yeah. say. All along. It, that's the experience for a reader that mm-hmm. is most powerful. Um, new ideas oftentimes are hard to integrate. Um, but an idea that was within me that you finally articulated for me. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah. Right? So, so yeah, we're not doing anything too terribly exciting actually in the day to day practice. <laughs> <of it. laughs> Yeah, it just looks romantic on TV and in the movies. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of, 
I don't know, fascinated isn't quite the right word. I get easily frustrated might be the better word. But, you know, I, I encounter so many people who, especially when they hear that I'm a creativity coach or, or even just that I'm a writer, and I'm going to bet that you've heard this too, say, oh, I'm, I'm not creative. And kind of, you know, they literally do this hand-waving thing like, oh, that's not. And it drives me nuts because I, I will sit there and think, were you ever a human child? Because if you were, that's pretty much all you did. That's all you did. And it's still there. It's just that somebody, you know, taught you not to do it. Although, sadly, and I have to get up on my grumpy old man, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, uh, pulpit for a minute. Um, I think we are actually seeing the first generation of kids who don't have any experience of their own creativity. Because if all you're doing is consuming the creativity of others... Um, you're not having any space to create your own. And sadly, I see that with some young people who um, most of their free time is consumed with either watching watching media or playing media or whatever. And, uh, and actually, the, the outcome of that is, um, is surprisingly, it's, there aren't dire outcomes to it. And they're not, they're not terrible to, to look at from the outside, but it's a lack of a sense of self because creativity for kids is often how they come to know, to know themselves um, is through that process of creation. So if you're not engaging in that, you never get to really know who you are. Um, and so, yeah, when somebody, an adult tells me uh, that they're not creative, my reaction is, Oh, you haven't met yourself yet. <laughs> or you forget what it was, you forget what it was like to be you. Let's get you reconnected with that. Yeah. I, I feel like it's, it's almost on a cultural level that it's sort of like, you know, we've created these, this sort of class, right? You have the creative people who are writing the books and singing the songs and, and, you know, choreographing and whatever. And then you have everybody else and everybody else kind of sits down here and, and sort of like what you were just saying, you know, they look at those people and think, wow, that must be great, but that's not who I am. And, and I, I find myself kind of wondering, you know, how, how do we fix that? that cultural divide. I don't know if you have any thoughts about mm-hmm. that, but it, it feels tragic to me that there are so many people yes. who think this. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think my answer to that is probably in part why we're talking and, and why Re- lovable resonated with you actually. So lovable started out. So there's these three parts to it, right? Um, the, 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 the tasks of, of embracing our worthiness of finding our places of belonging and then finding a purpose through the practicing of our passions. And actually that third part was the original, that was the original book. Ah. Uh, and, and then again, sitting in a room by myself, uh, I had to ask myself, can, what does it take for someone to receive this, this message? Um, and I realized that, um, t- like you said, telling someone that they're a creative and that they have creative passion sort of embedded within them if they haven't done the work of reconnecting with their true self and developing communities who will support their true self, it's, they can't hear it. It feels like a different language to them. So that's part of where the concept of lovable came from is that um, we don't start off by practicing our passions or, or returning to our passions in adulthood. We first have to start off in adulthood by returning to our true self, um, cultivating communities of people who are like, I see you. Um, I see that you love doing that. 
let's support you in doing that. And of course we do that in return for them as well. And then you really get to become more familiar with your passions again. Um, but yeah, most people, it'll feel very, very foreign to them. Um, and so that's why I sort of had to lay out lovable that way. Well, that makes sense though, though I'll tell you, I mean, it certainly was not just the last part of the book that made an impression on me. I mean, I may have told you the, the story that you tell at the very beginning, I was reading in a doctor's waiting room and I started to cry and I'm going, I didn't know this was going to make me cry. (laughs) Why didn't I start this at home? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know too many people who reconnect with their true self without a few tears involved. So that that's the, that's the hope and lovable is that it's not just ideas about reconnecting with your true self and really, um, being being able to embrace once again how worthy we each of us are um but that there will actually be that that'll actually happen while reading it um that there will be a reconnecting with one's true self so that that's as an author as a creative that's very gratifying <laughs> to hear that, that happened to you in a doctor's office <laughs> yeah it was a little embarrassing but oh well so it goes um and and you know i mean i don't regret that in the slightest i i would have liked to be someplace where I could have actually really <laughs> cried instead of trying not to. But, right. um, but yeah, I, I think that, you know, there's, there's something really powerful about reading a book that, that first of all makes that kind of impression right from the very beginning. But, you know, like I said, I was so surprised when I got to the third part and yet the third part of the book is so it's, it's kind of like a giant permission slip And, you know, I feel like there are so many times when I know I do this and other people do this, you know, where you feel like, oh, I don't have permission to do this. So I think the the huge permission slip third of the book is really, really important. Yeah, and I appreciate you saying that. I mean, I think that is something in that last third of the book, too, that I I try to come at from a bunch of different angles and in in a bunch of different ways that we've been we've sort of swallowed messages about what it means to be creative or practice your passion, you know, and, and one of the big ones and for, for folks who are listening uh, and one that I think probably was a big one for me that kept my, my passion for writing sort of trapped for a long time was this idea that it had to immediately also be a paycheck um, mm-hmm. to quickly lead to a career or something like that. And, uh, um, and, you know, the it's it's lovely if it does. It's also dangerous if it leads to a paycheck because then you you start to get confused motives about why you're doing it. You know, um, but I think that I think that the message that I'd want people who are listening to hear is um, you don't have to have a plan. You know, you don't have to have your five year plan about how you're going to monetize your your passion. Um, you know, instead, just start carving out and creating space within your week. Um, to 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 practice it and begin to see where it goes goes from there. Take the pressure off yourself. If you set aside, for me, it started three hours on a Friday morning. I'd wake up at five a.m. Kids would be getting up around eight a.m. I'd have three hours on a Friday, um, and if I, you know, put my butt in the chair and I got in front of the keyboard for three hours, success. That was that was what success was, mm-hmm. and that's evolved. That's evolved slowly over time. But don't try to get too far ahead of ourselves, right? Yeah, and I I have the feeling that you're talking about the the dark side of the paycheck from experience. Are you willing to talk about that a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, um, you're right about that. I mean, 
I think, um, I think that the creative process is a constant dance between your, your, your soul and your ego, your true self and your false self. Um, you know, I write in lovable that I thought at some point I thought you master the ego and you get rid of it and you know, you don't have to worry about it again, but I, I see it as a constant dance. And, um, and in our world, we use, we use, uh, we use paychecks and numbers and money as, as a sort of proxies for how well we're doing and if we're successful and whether or not we should keep doing something. Right. And the ego mm-hmm. wants to, the ego wants to say, well, if, if what you're doing isn't producing a certain amount of money, then uh, you're not very good at it. You should quit doing it. Um, and I certainly continue to experience that, that dance. Um, you know, I go through periods where um, my writing produces a little something extra for our family and my ego wants to seize on that and say, okay, now, now you're, now you're doing okay. <laughs> um, and then it wants to do the opposite of course to me when things aren't going as well. Um, but, uh, but I have to remember that I don't, I don't create because I, I have to make money from it. I, I create because I have to, to be who I am. Um, and, and so I'm, I, I feel like I'm constantly in that dance. And so my encouragement to people who are considering really getting serious about practicing their passion or being creative is actually make sure there's financial margin for it. Don't, um, don't force yourself to have to depend upon it, um, for financial gain right away. Um, or you may put an undue pressure on it, um, begin to construct your life so that you can practice it a little bit while also doing the things that help pay the bills and, and so on. That, that makes a whole lot of sense, especially because, you know, people have this image of, oh, so-and-so got a book deal. They're going to have, you know, this giant check and they can stay at home and do nothing but sit at a desk and write all day or, you know, go to the beach or whatever they want to do. And that's really not how it works for most people. I mean, if you're really lucky, but yeah. No, exactly. Like, yeah, the idea of getting rich off of selling books, um, yeah, that's the the top 10 of 1%, you know, of folks. And, um, and in fact, what I would say is that, um, in my experience, publishing a book and having some success with it, you don't, you don't have a lot of financial success still, even from the book. Um, what it does is it shifts, it shifts how you work hard. (laughs) So I spend less time now in my therapy office and spend more time out on the road speaking to people, um, because people are willing to hire me to do that. And I love doing that. Um, and so it's, you, you, you don't, I think a lot of us envision that the creative life sort of excuses us from working hard. And I would actually argue that it is the hardest work you can do. Um, and, yeah. and the idea that it's going to help you escape from that is um, you could probably let go of that right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's true because you know, I mean, you kind of said it earlier, you know, you're, whether you're writing or painting or, or whatever your creative pursuit is, you're still drawing out of yourself into a format that you can show to the rest of the world, which is usually a whole lot harder than going and, you know, into work every day and processing whatever you process or, you know, directing whatever yeah, and- you direct because it's your soul on display. So you have right. to have a certain degree of courage that most jobs don't necessarily require just to do what you're doing. There's a lot of courage involved. There's a the courage that goes with being vulnerable, the courage that goes with really um, life becoming much more unpredictable, um, you know, as you spend more and more time on it. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think it takes a lot of courage, a lot of hard work. And um, and that's why, you know, you, you better be doing something you love <laughs> um, if you're going to be doing it, because that that really has to be 
the, uh, the, the biggest payoff, uh, more than anything is that you're doing something you love. Um, cause it's not going to go well, you're going to fail and, uh, and you, and you might as well fail at doing something that you really enjoy. Just, just this morning, my 15 year old texted me, poor guy. And he didn't, he, he got cut from, a, it's a very small theatrical sort of ensemble cast that he was trying out for. And, you know, he expressed all the things that I often feel like I just want to quit. It's not worth it. You know, this feels miserable. Um, and it's like, yeah, yep. Like, welcome to the creative life. This, <laughs> this is, I know you love, I know you love that moment up on stage. Right. And it, when the curtain, um, comes up for the, 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 the crowd to cheer, but man, this is, is just as much a part of the creative life as that. Yeah. I don't, I don't think you can do anything creative if you're afraid of failing. No, I think that's well said. I think you can pretty much sum it up in that way. Yep. Yeah. I mean, among other things, if you're not, if you're not failing, you're probably not trying hard enough though. I hesitate to say trying hard enough because I don't like the idea of making it feel like this big pressure. I have to do all the things, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of angle to creativity because usually creativity goes better when you take the pressure off. But at the same time, if you're not experimenting, if you're not, you know, doing new stuff, if everything that you have comes out perfectly as if, you know, this drawing looks just like the one before it and the one after it, then you, you know, need to go try failing a little bit, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's not an assembly line sort of thing where you keep producing the same thing. Yeah. uh, Yeah, exactly. Not widgets. Um, Not widgets. (laughs) There you go. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I even, I'm, as we're talking, I'm even aware that um, I'm aware so one of the, I think one of the most important things that's emerged since I wrote Lovable and talking about this idea of passion is that sometimes too, we can get so caught up in thinking of our creativity and our passions as something we do um, rather than, and I think this is much more helpful to most of us, um, as the way that we do all the things that we do. So for instance, you know, people have said, so, hey, when you if you hit the, you hit a bestseller list, are you going to quit your job as a therapist? Um, and my answer for a long time was like, well, no, I wouldn't do that. Um, are you going to sell your practice? No, I wouldn't do that. Um, and it started to dawn on me that, that being a therapist, building a practice, being a dad, being a husband, being an author, they all actually are part of, of, a a passion that undergirds all of that and and the passion that undergirds it is um, as I've been able to identify it to this point or describe it is speaking in the caring voice of a father such that people know they're worthy. Um, And that I get to do that as a therapist. I get to do it as an author. I get to do it as a husband, as a, as a father. And so my encouragement to creatives would be that, that we are, like, as you said, we're all creative. Um, And so I'm not just creative when I'm in front of the keyboard. I'm also creating when I'm um, putting stamps on a, on Christmas cards with my daughter, right? Mm-hmm. How am I doing that? How does that become a creative act? Um, and how do I add my own bit of uniqueness to that creative act? So even if you are making widgets, I think there's, I think there's potential for creativity within that. Um, and you're getting to know yourself better as you figure out what that creativity looks like in that, in that endeavor. I'm so glad you said that because I feel like there are so many little things that we all do every day that are creative that we don't even notice. And the fact that we don't notice them is part of how people fall into this, Oh no, I'm not creative trap. So, you know, I think somehow we need to start noticing them because they're everywhere. 
they're everywhere. Um, and, and so the question, yeah, the question is how does my true self show up to this moment to be creative in this moment? Um, regardless of, of what it is I'm doing. And as you begin to ask that question and answer it, um, you, you become more and more deeply connected with your creative side. And, uh, and then you can think about, okay, now that, I'm, now that I'm more familiar with myself, how do I start carving out space to be really intentional about practicing that in some way? That's great. Yeah. One of the examples I often give, and people don't think of it this way, is like surgeons, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, I would argue that probably no two surgeons have like, you, you think, well, they must have a passion for surgery. I think it's probably not the case because, um, you know, it might be that one surgeon has a passion for, um, for the art form that is the you know human biology. It, it might be that another surgeon has a passion for, um, having to think on their feet and everybody looking at them, you know, <laughs> to, to to answer the problem right Right. in the moment that's a creative act in almost every surgery something goes wrong we don't like to talk about that right right (laughs) but but it happens and so there's a creative moment in every surgery where the the surgeon has to make something up so there's 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 endless forms of potential creativity in all endeavors and how do you begin to discern what is it in this moment that triggers my sense of creativity and passion the most yeah you're you're reminding me my my dad is an electrical engineer there you and go. you yeah. know, people think that science and tech and all that is not creative. Cause it, and yet how can it not be, you know, you're, yeah. you're discovering a cure for cancer. You're writing a new piece of software. You're designing a new circuit. That's going to go into this device. That's going to do this new thing. And nobody's ever yes. done this before. You have no idea how it's going to work. You've got certain constraints which, yep. you know, provides some structure, which creative people tend to flee from. And yet structure mm-hmm. can actually help you a lot. And, Absolutely. you know, so, so we ignore that kind of creativity, even though it's, it's right there. You can't do that job without it. Well, and I love what you're doing with the show because you're sort of helping people to name um, something that they are, that, a potential to identify their own creativity that they'd miss otherwise, you know, and I think that's right on. Yeah. In fact, um, I saw this quote on Instagram a couple months ago that said the creative adult is the child who survived. Mm-hmm. And Love that. It, it makes me think, you know, in, in your book and in your podcast and everywhere else, you spend a lot of time talking about the child that's still inside mm-hmm. us and, you know, the, the way to kind of bring that child back out. Because I feel like that's what mm-hmm. the I'm not creative people are kind of missing is that kid's still in there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, yeah, I've told this story elsewhere, but um, I'll, I'll say it again because it was such a, a turning point for me. You know, I, when I started my blog, I think I had, I think four people shared my first blog post. Um, and then I had a, I had one that was a little more popular a few months later. It was about a year after I started or maybe a little more that I wrote a letter to my daughter about how she's inherently worthy of interest. And, and that blog post went very viral. I hadn't planned on sharing it on my blog, but my wife had encouraged me to. And then a year after that, I wrote a second one to her about her, how her, her most enduring beauty is on the inside of her. Mm-hmm. That one went really viral and she and I wound up on the Today Show and, um, and I got connected with an agent and the agent said to me, you know, you should, you, everyone's responding to letters to your kids. You should probably write a parenting book. And so I went home to my wife, who's the child clinical psychologist, by the way, who's also named Kelly. And I said, Kelly, uh, Kathy, my agent wants me to, to write a, 
a parenting book and my wife like laughed in my face it's like dude there's no no way you should be writing a parenting book and she of course she's right because everything i've learned from parenting is from messing up and watching her over the last you know 12 years and uh and so but she and i got talking we're like well yeah if it's not the parenting element of these letters that is resonating with people what is it and one of the things i realized was that when i looked at the thousands of emails i was getting there was only a small fraction of them from people saying hey i'm going to give this letter to my daughter someday or to my granddaughter someday. It was the vast majority were from people saying, I needed to hear these words still. I needed to be reminded I'm worthy. I needed to be reminded I'm not alone and that I matter. And it sort of, that that's what it sort of clicked for me. We all still have a little one inside of us that's waiting on a love letter. Um, and if we can connect with that little one, um, embrace them, create a safe space for them to come out and play, if you will, mm-hmm. um, form that they come out and play in is, is creativity. Yeah, definitely. And, and I remember, I don't remember which, which of those two posts it was, but one of them is how I found you. Oh, is that right? <laughs> so, yeah. Cause, <laughs> cause it was, it was everywhere. Was I'm, I'm curious how, what your daughter thought of going on the today show. <laughs> <laughs> um, she was three at the time. Um, and she just has this, this delightful, lovely personality where she's just pretty much game for anything. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, we, we went on the show. She seemed really unfazed by it. Um, I remember like, uh, I've actually only watched the interview one time in the hotel room shortly after that day. And I said to her, Hey, do you want to see yourself on TV? She's like, no. Um, <laughs> and I've offered it to her several times since. And she's like, no, I don't really want to see it. Um, wow. Although, although just recently, um, some friends, you know, she's in third grade now, mm-hmm. and this is where we start to see things like ego start to form and stat- status matters and that sort of thing. And uh, she said just recently, you know, one of my friends said that I'm famous because I was on the Today Show. Um, and yeah, and I was like, oh, here we go. <laughs> teenage, teenage years are just around the corner. <laughs> but um, but uh, so I suspect sometime soon she's going to be like, hey, can we watch that Today Show video? And uh, and then we'll see what she thinks then. But um, but it was a blast for all of us, actually. Yeah, I would imagine so. How did it impact you in the way that you approach your own writing? You know, that's a great question that, that no one um, has ever asked me before. But I actually um, have thought about this a bunch. And I was terrified to go on the Today Show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and in order to go up there and uh, get on that orange couch and be coherent, Um, I needed to get into a place, you know, my daughter was on the couch with me, my wife and two sons were off, off stage, but I could see them. And I needed to get into a place where I remembered that, um, I was speaking for, for them primarily, Mm -hmm. um, that, that they were the only audience I really cared about. Um, and that being able to, to connect with that truth, um, is something that I go back to all the time as a writer. Um, I usually when I'm writing, I'm writing for one person, my family, and maybe one or two other people. Um, and if I can remember that when I'm creating, I'm creating for the people that I belong to, not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gives me all sorts of freedom to just, to just be myself and, and say what I have to say. You know, I have the feeling that that's why the things you write connect with so many people kind of mm-hmm. ironically, <laughs> you know, I think if, my you, favorite, yeah. if you try to please everybody, yeah, you know, right. it doesn't tend to right. work as well. Yeah. One of my favorite um, authors, Henry Nouwen, who I actually mentioned in that Today Show interview, um, he, uh, 
he says that the most personal is also the most universal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, yeah, I, I guess I, when I write, I hope to write about what is most personal to me, to the people who are closest to me. And then if that happens to translate into to universal things, then, then so be it. Yeah. And, and I imagine, you know, doing your podcast the way you've done it on Facebook Live, where you're getting input mm-hmm. from people who are listening right there in that moment, must kind of demonstrate that too. Yeah, you know, I think, I think one advantage I've had is, um, you know, I have to say, like, a lot of what I write, I write about my own personal experiences, for the most part, but I've had the, the good fortune to be a therapist, and to get to sort of test out my ideas mm-hmm. with lots of people and to discover like, oh, lots of people are like me. <laughs> they, we all, we all came into the world with a true self. We all experienced shame. We all started hiding our true self with our ego. And once we reconnect with our true self, we all become creative in some form. It just, it, it just plays out over and over again. And so, um, and so then to, yeah, have that continue to be reinforced by people like yourself who go, wow, this resonated with me. Um, that's been awesome. And so it, it sort of gives me the confidence to, to keep saying it um, mm-hmm. to, to as many people as I can. So it sounds like, from what you just said, that you've seen people who previously had no creative impulse, and once they get to that moment, it just comes out of nowhere, even if you haven't laid that foundation specifically? Oh, oh yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's, the, um, that's the, to me, the really exciting thing, is that as you reconnect with your true self, um, the, the natural conclusion is that your, your, your natural creativity, your passions begin to emerge. Um, and, um, and, and at that point it requires a lot, it's less about working to, to embody those and more just about allowing them to be embodied through you. Right. Like at that point you just need to get out of the way and let it happen. Um, which is of course it's not easy to do either. Um, it it comes much more naturally, I think. Yeah. You know, people, and I certainly have had people say this to me and I imagine almost all of us have probably heard the, you know, you need to get out of your own way. What, what do you think is, if there is a key to getting out of your own way, what do you think it might be? So um, if you can encapsulate it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the way I would sort of tweak that statement and it's, it's exactly right on, you need to get out of your own way. Um, it would be that your false self needs to get out of the way of your true self. Um, but that's specifically the job of the false self is to get in the way of the true self, hide it away. Um, and, and to, to, to back up a couple of steps. So you come into the world, the true self as a kid, you embodied it for a while. Most of us, we were playful, creative, and then somewhere along the way we encounter shame, which is this message that your true self isn't good enough. Um, the way that you are, um, it won't earn you the love and belonging that you, you so desperately want in the world. And so all of us, every human being at some point in our childhood begins to develop a self, a false self that hides the true self away, protects us from, from any more shame. And that false self, um, as I talk about it in lovable, I talk about it like a castle that -hmm. protects our true self. Um, and the false self has three components, castle walls that hide our true self away, um, castle cannons um, that get aggressive and attack other people so they can't hurt us first. Um, and then castle thrones, like the, the the arrogant ways we sort of say, hey, I've done this, I've earned this, I've, you know, and so now you can't really question if I'm good enough because I've proven I am. Um, and and that false self is has zero creative potential. Um, it, um, it, 
it's driven by ambition, not by passion. Um, it's driven by a desire to achieve, not to create. Um, and so that false self, if we're living from it, is what gets in the way, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, that's, when we say we have to get out of our, out of our own way, we're saying we need to begin to lower the drawbridge of that ego castle of all of our protections and ambitions and achievement and all of that. We need to let our true self walk out and just create in the world. Um, and so if there's a, is there a, is there a takeaway tip there? I think the main thing um, is to begin to, I say this to people all the time, uh, first thing in the morning, we all, most of us check our phones now. Last, last thing at night, most yeah. of us check, check our phones, <laughs> right? So instead, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, instead of flicking through your phone, flick through your ego. Ask yourself, how did I hide today? Um, how did I protect today? How did I elevate myself today? Um, and as you begin to observe those processes within you, those ways of embodying the false self rather than the true self, the really exciting thing about that is the you that is observing it is your true self. So by observing your ego protections, observing the ways you try to hide your true self away, you're actually beginning to inhabit your true self again. And as you stay more and more in that space, you're going to get more and more connected with who you actually are and all the creativity that goes along with it. That sounds like a really, really potent journaling practice. I, that's a, I think that'd be a great way to yeah. put it. Yeah, like a, a daily journal in which you're sort of working through the, those levels of protection that you've built into your life because you don't want to be shamed again. Um, I think I think that alone can be a pathway to to reconnecting with the creative in you. Yeah, I f- I feel like shame plays such a huge part in this whole process of you know ending ending up where we can't figure out what we want to do or how to do it or believe that we can do it. And, and maybe it's the only thing really that, that gets us there or the chief thing that gets us there. And I, I wonder about that too, as a cultural thing, because I feel like we're a little bit more enlightened about shame these days. Brene Brown has done a great job of, of, you know, making us aware of that and everything. But I, I don't know if there's a way to, Maybe I think too big because I think of it as a cultural thing because I feel like we, if we're not careful, we can drown in it because it's everywhere. Mm. I don't know if, if there's a way to attack that or if it's really, yes, it's a cultural thing, but we all have to deal with it on our own individual level. Mm. I, um, yeah, I think culture changes one person at a time. Um, and, uh, and I resonate with that, you know, we, when you when you realize how much collectively our shame is keeping us small and limiting us and preventing us from living the lives that we want to, you just want to erase it off the face of the planet. I get a blog post once like I'm declaring war on shame or something <laughs> like that, right? <laughs> um, but um, but you know, I think that the um, and I think in a way, like if that's your passion, if that's your if that's the thing you feel that you want to do with your creativity is to work at eliminating the collective level of shame on the planet for instance Brene Brown right I think mm-hmm. that's what her passion is yeah. um, and so she's she's doing it but um but if that's not specifically your passion then instead um work work at not allowing your shame to dictate your life um embody your creativity and the collective level of shame on the planet will be reduced by one <laughs> and that's that's about what most of us can do <laughs> and that's not nothing I think no, know, it's not. we feel like, oh, it's just me. What can I do on my own? But I think that's not, not insignificant. Mm-hmm. 
Well, there's that Howard Thurman quote I put in, um, in lovable. Um, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive and go do it because what the world needs is people who have come alive. I love right. That quote. Yeah. And, yeah. And I am only in charge of one person coming alive and that's me. <laughs> that quote, I mean, the whole idea of coming alive, I think that's really what happens when mm-hmm. you make that connection with your true self and what you, you know, really want to be doing. Is it, yes. you know, I, I need to be sculpting. I need to be, mm-hmm. you know, teaching little kids to be artists or, you know, whatever it is. I think that really, and, and you can feel it. You can feel it in your body when it happens. You can there's, feel it in your body. There's that energy that doesn't exist the rest of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I, I, there's a couple of things there that you just said. Number one is that, um, the two words that for me are like red flags for shame um, are should and supposed to. Uh, mm-hmm. And that when you begin to get a little f- sense of freedom from your shame, all of a sudden, a lot of the things that you thought were rules, aren't, they aren't actually rules. Um, they were just barriers to you getting to do what you want to do. Um, and so when I'm working with clients, whenever they say should or supposed to, I say, I'm just going to pause you for a second. I don't know if that's what's happening here, but there's a decent chance that shame is telling you something right now, um, and we need to we need to challenge it a little bit. Um, so so yeah, so I really appreciate that that there's an increased sense of freedom. And then something you just said is so important: um, the the effort that it takes to keep our emotions under wraps, to manage our shame, to um, be building an ego castle and maintaining it and using it. Um, when we begin to get free of that process and we're just living from our true self, um, we experience an exponential increase in, in energy um, because now all of our, our emotional and our psychic energies are not going to keeping all of our emotions stuffed yeah. up, keeping our defenses up. It, that's all that energy is freed up to be who we are and to create. And that could be really, really fun. Yeah. And it's amazing that, you know, most of us don't even realize because it just feels normal that we're using all of that energy and that we don't have that feeling like, Oh my God, I'm alive. Um, yes, we don't know it. Yeah, we don't. And yet when you do have that feeling, even if it's only for, you know, five minutes, the first time, it's kind of amazing. It's like, I didn't know this was possible. How, how do we not all know that this, you know, how do we forget? And, and I'm sort of acting that out and sort of asking the question at the same time. It's amazing to me that we do that. Well, and I bet, and I've said this so many times, I bet every parent here will resonate with this. I've said it out loud to my kids countless times. How do you have so much energy, right? Yeah. And and we want to write it off to, well, it's because they're kids. Um, and so they're physically, they have more energy. But the truth is their soul has more energy um, because it's it's not so suppressed. Um, and we're not spending so much of our mental and emotional energy keeping it under wraps. And so there is like, there is a second childhood that happens as you begin to reconnect with, with that true self. Um, the energy that reemerges because you're not spending it on other things, um, it's actually sustainable. Like, it's not like it's just a spurt, you know, that mm-hmm. way it's a sustainable energy that you can maintain over time because you're not, you're not expending that energy on keeping yourself suppressed. Yeah. You, you know, I, I love that, you know, we've got to this point in the conversation and, you know, hey, we can kind of un- uncork this bottle that lets all this energy loose. But I also can imagine that someone might be listening to this and thinking, boy, it must be nice if you can get there, but <laughs> I'm never going to make it or, you know, something along that line. And just wondering what you might have to say to that person. Yeah. 
I hear you loud and clear <laughs> is what I'd say. Um, I'd say, in fact, as I was rereading those journals from mm-hmm. earlier today, uh, the, the journal that I had in my hand covered the three years from pr- prior to starting my blog and the, the recurring theme in that three years. And I often wrote it out in like one word sentences. I am so tired. Um, <laughs> And uh, the irony when I look back is that I was doing about half of what I was doing at that point, that half of what I'm doing now. And mm-hmm. yet I was so exhausted by all of it um, because none of it was connected to my passion and creativity. So none of it was giving me energy. It was all just sapping me. So number one, empathy. Like I get it. I've been there for years, for decades of, of my own life. And the starting point that we have to remember for for this whole, what sounds like probably a pretty daunting process of reconnecting with your true self is space, stillness, and rest, actually. Um, that um, the shift began to happen for me um, around 10 years ago when I started to create space in my life um, for, for rest, for stillness, and for meditation, um, for mindfulness of my thoughts and feelings, and for um, increased capacity to be present to whatever was going on inside of me, whether it was hard or painful or joyful or whatever. Um, and that sometimes it's years of practice of, of rest, stillness, and space. And all of a sudden one day you hear a still small voice within you, you know, going, you really are lovable. Um, you get to do whatever you want. Um, don't set, don't, don't settle for connecting with people who don't see you for who you are and all of the good things you are. Um, don't let them steal your energy that way. Um, you'll find the people who really see you and, and you belong to, and then go do it. Just go have fun doing this thing that you want to do. Um, and it's not a initially a uh, always a mountaintop experience. Sometimes it's just this very still, small, quiet experience, but it is joyful. Mm-hmm. I, I think the the belonging and and actually your comment about not settling for the people that you don't essentially Mm -hmm. belong to it's not exactly how you said it but I think that's so important and so easy to overlook Mm -hmm. especially if those people are people we think that for want of a better way of putting it we're stuck with you know yeah my parents don't understand my brother makes fun of me you know what whatever it happens to be that's the irony is that your parents and family will probably be the people least likely to understand you (laughs) oftentimes. And I think that's a hard thing. The amount of energy that people spend trying to convince their family members that their true self is good, worthy, and acceptable. um, That's all energy that's meant to be going into creativity. Um, And so beginning to just let go of some of those processes of, of trying to convince certain people um, that we're worthy and that what we want to do is, is, is good can be so essential. I was just speaking this past weekend at a conference for entrepreneurs out in San Diego and Dr. Sean Stevenson spoke there. Some people will know his Ted talk. Uh, he was born with a bone disorder and he's, he's three feet tall and he's wheelchair bound and he wasn't supposed to live more than 24 hours. And, uh, he's 40 years old now. Yeah. And, uh, his very first speaking point when he got up to talk was, um, don't ever believe a prediction that disempowers you. Um, and, and don't hang around too long with people who give those predictions. Um, he's not saying don't be around people who challenge you. Don't be around people who Mm -hmm. give you thoughtful feedback and criticism, but don't, don't spend too much time with people who disempower you. Um, and, uh, I know that was a a talking point that really resonated with most people at that conference. And I think it's, it's sort of what you're queuing in on there. 
Yeah, that that feels like another bumper sticker to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's yeah. yeah he's got a good bumper sticker with that one. It's right on. Yeah, either that or tattoo it across your forehead. Yeah, right. <laughs> My forehead would be pretty full, and I'd look very strange. But <laughs> right, if we had bumper sticker foreheads, we'd look like a bumper on the back of a car. You know, all we would. Topic. Yeah, <laughs> the kind that you can't see the car through. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, we're almost out of time, but I'm just wondering if there's if there's anything else that's come to mind or if there's a piece of advice that you've gotten along the way that you think is something that people might need to hear or anything else that you might like to share. Um, if I would encourage folks to do a really interesting experiment with this episode, um, which is that if at any point in the episode, you notice yourself having resistance to the ideas um, or as you pointed out, um, oh, well, that, that's just not me. Uh, I can't do that. If there is a disempowering voice already within you and you've noticed it pipe up a little bit um, during this, uh, this episode, I'd actually encourage you to go back, start the episode over um, and listen for that voice inside of you as you're watching the episode and begin to notice the, the, the points where you hear that disempowering voice because that's where your shame is creeping in. Um, that's where your shame is telling you that you don't have enough of anything. You don't have enough time. You don't have enough intelligence. You don't have enough creativity. You don't have, it's that, it's that shaming, disempowering voice and beginning to cue in on that voice and no longer just accepting it as the soundtrack for your life, but actually saying, I'm not going to choose. I'm going to choose to put that voice on trial. I'm going to choose to, to decide whether or not that voice is giving an accurate testimony about me. And if you can do that, um, if you can begin to put that voice on trial um, and give it a, verti- a guilty verdict, over time, that, that voice of shame, that disempowering voice within you will begin to die down. And, uh, and, and that other voice we talked about, that still small voice, will have some space to be heard. Um, so that's it's sort of an, an odd experiment to suggest, but maybe you go back and you use this very episode as a chance to begin uh, to relate to, to that disempowering voice in a different way. I think that's a really, really powerful idea, and I hope people will do it. And I hope that they'll let me know what happens. If they do, I will be sure to let you know. That's so. I would love to. I'll look forward to hearing those. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, thank you so much again for taking the time to talk to me today. This has been really, really fascinating, and I think that people are going to get a lot out of it. It was an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. That's our episode. Thanks so much for joining me and a very special thank you to Dr. Kelly Flanagan. You can find me online and learn more about how you can work with me to follow your curiosity at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. Thanks so much. See you next time.